You're listening to Season 10 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979 to today. This is Episode 10.3, Unfriendly Fire, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, and I forgot to write one of these this week, so I I guess if you can't befriend the fire, you have to fire your friends? I don't know, come back to me. And I'm Nina, new to Victory Gundam, and curious whether Uso is as good at hand-to-hand combat as he is at mobile suit martial arts. He certainly kicked Chronicles, took us. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 723 paying subscribers. A quick shout out to our newest patrons, Ben B, Layston A, Dan N, Rachel B, and Erostraus. Thank you for keeping MSB Genki. And a special thank you to Matthew Y for buying us a book from our wish list. This week on MSB, Victory Gundam Episode 3, Uso no Tatakai, or Uso's Battle. It was written by Sonoda Hideki, storyboarded by Nishimori Akira, and directed by Takase Setsuo, with Maeda Meiju as animation director. And now, the recap. In the present, Shakti reminisces about the events of the past three days, wondering which it was that sealed their fate, to leave Casarelia, join up with the League Militaire Convoy, for Uso to become the pilot of the Victory Gundam, and herself the caretaker for little baby Karlman. It was Uwig, she thinks, and the horrors Uso witnessed there that changed him, changed everything. In the past, Uwig burns. The sky glows red and cinders drift in the smoke-choked air. People flee in every direction, in refugee columns like headless writhing serpents, for there is nowhere to go. The exits have all been destroyed, and no place is safe. The screams of terrified children mingle with the sounds of bombs falling only blocks away, and everywhere, everywhere the oppressive drone of Vespa beam rotors. Uso uses the dense forest canopy to conceal his approach to the city, but the sight of bomb craters and ruined streets carpeted with bodies drives him beyond reason. He leaps into the sky, only to be jarred by gunfire from the ground. It seems that some resistance yet remains in this dying city. The defenders of Uwig, lightly armed and dressed in everyday street clothes, mistake Uso's Shako for another Vespa Raider. As they concentrate on him, a Zolo from the infamous Yellow Jacket unit swings in behind their position and, as Uso watches in frozen horror, annihilates them in hails of rockets. The Zolo's pilot mistakes Uso for Lieutenant Chronicle and radios a greeting, but when Uso fails to respond, the Yellow Jacket realizes that this Shako must have fallen into enemy hands. They duel briefly, until a huge explosion from the ground separates the two machines. Uso disengages. He came to Uig to protect one young woman, Katagina Luz, but he does not know where to find her. His voice blares from the Shako's loudspeakers. Where is Miss Katagina Luz? The girl's father hears the message, but misunderstands it. 
He thinks Bespa itself has dispatched this mobile suit to ensure the safety of his family. The mistake is understandable, for Mr. Luz has already betrayed Uwig, cutting a deal with the Yellow Jackets for his own safety. He hurries home to tell Katagina the good news, but she throws it back in his face. He's naive and despicable. Doesn't he understand that the Yellow Jackets are Bespa's cruelest soldiers? Can't he see the massacre they are perpetrating right outside their windows? They argue over her use of the term massacre, and who is really to blame for what Bespa has done. But when Katagina mentions her mother, missing since before the attack, Mr. Luz strikes her across the face. She storms out, a look of fury stamped on her features. The street outside the Luz family shop is clogged with broken down cars. A Zolo copter buzzes by, the pilot gleefully strafing the refugees. Katagina barely avoids being hit. Nearby, a young mother with a baby in her arms is shot from behind and falls lifeless. Then, suddenly, Uso is there in the Shako, descending on the Zolo and driving it to the ground. The Yellow Jacket pilot abandons his stricken machine and bolts for the cover of a nearby alleyway. He only makes it a few steps before a resistance fighter guns him down. It is all too much for Uso. He passes out and has to be pulled from the Shako. A few meters away, the baby, miraculously unharmed despite it all, tugs at his mother's lifeless body and sobs. Uso wakes up in a large, old-style building, a train station perhaps. Hundreds of refugees, including Katagina and the baby, have gathered in the concourse, along with a handful of survivors from the resistance. Katagina is relieved to see Uso alive and unharmed, but the reunion is soon interrupted. The remaining Yellow Jackets have convinced themselves that the League Militaire's secret underground base must be around here somewhere, and so they blast the whole sector, including the building where the refugees are sheltering, into oblivion. Uso, Katagina, and the baby survive, but they are trapped under the rubble until Uso finds a weak spot in the wall and breaks through into an ancient subway tunnel. They make it back to the Shako and use it to flee the city for the relative safety of Casarelia. But a pair of yellow jackets scouring the countryside for the missing Shako and Marbet's core fighter have already discovered the tiny settlement. They are interrogating Shakti and Odello when Uso arrives and attacks. The battle is ferocious. Uso, outnumbered and unwilling to risk using his beam rifle, is nearly killed by the professional soldiers. He is only saved by the timely intervention of Marbet and the League Militaire Engineers, using the Camion and the top limb from the Victory Gundam as an ersatz anti-air battery. One Zolo is shot down, and the other forced to retreat. At last, there is quiet. The kids, Marbet, the old men of the League Militaire, and little baby Carlman gather in a glade near Casarelia. Safe. For now. Roughly half of the runtime of this episode is devoted to the Bespa Yellow Jackets raid or assault or bombardment. Katagina, I think, quite accurately calls it a massacre of the people of Uwig or Wuwig City. We are recording this just under two years into the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine and 115 days into the Israeli bombardment and invasion of Gaza. So... The experience of watching this hit us pretty hard. 
This is one pattern of our coverage of Tomino Gundam that I wish would stop. Uh, weirdly eternally relevant. Yeah. Which uh, I wonder how Tomino feels about that. Is that depressing or is it like, well, yeah, guys, that's the point. We never learn anything. And that's depressing. But it is not as if this is the first time that Tomino has done this. In fact, this has been a recurring motif. It has become part of Gundam's fundamental DNA to see these uh, scenes of civilians fleeing as their homes are destroyed by mobile suits whose power so far exceeds that of an individual human that they aren't even comparable, that it's like being destroyed by fire from the gods. In first Gundam, we saw this right in the very first episode. Double Zeta especially, I think, is probably the closest analog with the attack on Dublin. Generally, when we see these, there is a, a battle happening in the city and that the civilians are the victims of collateral damage. Here and in Double Zeta, the point is to kill the civilians. While there is some resistance, it is so weak as to be nominal, token. It has no chance. They're firing rifles against mobile suits. They may as well be throwing stones. And the attackers have taken steps to prevent the civilians from being able to leave. Exits have been destroyed or blocked. In Double Zeta, uh, the Xeon forces were destroying hospital ships. Yeah, they mention explicitly that every way out of Uig is is blocked, that there doesn't seem to be a way out. The massacre is the point. It is extermination. And in Dublin, the sheer size of the attack is so large that only people with sufficient advanced knowledge, which is to say only the elites, could have managed to get away in time. And I don't know if this was intended when they designed the Bespa mobile suits, but there is something about helicopters specifically, especially these kinds of helicopter gunships. Like because helicopters fly low to the ground and relatively slowly, they are particularly susceptible to anti-aircraft fire, to uh, interception by fighter aircraft. So they're really only usable in this context when you already have air superiority. And because of their expense and the difficulty of maintaining them, uh, they really are the weapon of the more powerful side. They are the weapon of the side that has already achieved dominance in order to leverage that dominance to cause maximum damage. In addition to the fact that the exits have been blocked, we see one Yellow Jackets pilot pretty gleefully gunning down civilians, explicitly says, run and hide, I will still find you. Killing them for sport. And even the ones who are more focused on destroying League military facilities don't have any concern for or even thought of collateral damage in doing so. There is not even a moment's hesitation or a moment's consideration of, well, how could we do this in a way that limits harm to the local population? Not even crossing their minds. These are the two who are like, this is the area around where Chris was killed. That means this must be the secret League military base. Let's destroy everything. Let's level this whole block, right? Yeah. Because it starts with that line about this is where Chris was killed, it feels like this is also coming tinged with vengeance. That it's not just here's our objective, we'll destroy it, and we don't care about the collateral damage. There is a sense of they got our guy, so we're going to do as much damage as we can. Like any resistance justifies limitless retaliation. Speaking of that area that they bombard, 
the depiction of both the outside and inside of the building in which people are sheltering, as well as things like a couple of different statues and sort of town squares in Uig, uh, made me think it's probably based on a real place or a collage of real places. Uig is Prague or Praha. Oh, okay. The building people are sheltering in had the feeling of a train station with those long banks of seats. Mm, I thought it was like a palace that had been converted to a government office or something. Oh, maybe. It, yeah, it felt like a waiting room. Yeah. Right? Long wooden banks of seats back to back and then facing each other. At first I thought pews, but then I realized they were sitting back to back. Same. Also, the outside of the building did not look like a church. The other thing about that scene of all the people sheltering that made me again think of the early 90s was one of the locals who presumably is involved in League Militaire, although that's not at all clear who is and who is merely a local trying to defend themselves. I think that's probably true of the League Militaire in general. It is an alliance of local people who want to defend their own little patch. Just like Uso, who at the end says, this is our Casarelia. This is our land. Get out. But he is kind of trying to encourage and stir the local populace not to surrender and to keep fighting, you know, keep their spirits up while they are all sheltering here. And he mentions both our comrades in the space colonies and the Earth Federation. And I wonder what exactly he means about comrades in the space colonies. Like... Is this uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing that Zanskar is fighting some kind of force in the space colonies and so their attention is divided? Uh, or is there something more formal or some other ideological point that ties them to those space noids? See, what I got immediately was visions of like protest marches citizens in these other colonies, in the other sides, marching in the streets with banners like stop killing the earthnoids, mm. civil unrest mm -hmm. from from sympathetic civilians trying to motivate their governments to actually do something, to get involved, to take some kind of action against Zanskar. And this speech conveys that they are like, they're so powerless. The only thing they have is their righteousness, their innocence, their feeling that their cause is just, and the hope that other people out in the world can see that and will work on their behalf. I couldn't help but feel a pang of concern given uh, this young man's confidence in the Earth Federation, because if there's one thing I've learned by watching Gundam, it's never have confidence in the Earth Federation to help you. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting as a sort of world-building moment, the way this speech is crafted, because um, it suggests that power, real power, has devolved to the other sides, that the Earth Federation has really become a federation, not really a central government throwing its weight around, but a formalized alliance of these different sides. Coming back to the point that I was originally working my way towards, it's difficult for me to say because this like early 90s period is really the earliest memories I have of the news and of news events. And even then it's quite vague. But it really felt like this period of the early 90s was one of the first periods in which we see international organizations and how they choose to be involved or not be involved in these conflicts. 
as being really important. Organizations like the UN and like NATO and whether or not they send aid, whether or not they send weapons, whether or not they send troops or peacekeeping forces becomes like a major aspect of these conflicts. I've done a little bit of reading, you know, I'm preparing a couple of related research pieces, and it does seem like this was sort of the high watermark for UN interventionism, for the dispatch of peacekeepers to trouble areas. And most of those missions seem not to have accomplished very much. And there's, you know, they debated it then and we can debate it now. There's a lot of reasons why that happened. And you can always do counterfactuals like how much worse would it have been if they weren't there? Could it have been saved if these small changes had been made? But because the missions in the early 90s were largely perceived to have been boondoggles, I think the UN pulled back from that kind of interventionism. But here in Victory Gundam, I think we see that debate still happening of like, maybe the world government will send troops to help the people of Uig, though they're going to arrive too late for these guys. But you also see similar things in like Pat Labor 2, which came out around now and opens with a scene of uh, Japan self-defense force troops attached to a UN peacekeeping mission getting attacked and wiped out because of the like rules of engagement that are restricting them from fighting. When we were first getting all of our notes organized, you mentioned that the news media had also changed pretty significantly at this time. These conflicts of the early 90s, in particular the Yugoslav Wars, which had started by this point, and this uh, this episode would have been made during the early parts of the Siege of Sarajevo and would have come out about one year into that four-year-long battle. And that war saw the development of, or at least the early development of what we might think of as modern war correspondence. Reporters from all around the world traveling to the hotspot, getting embedded, wearing the, the blue flak jackets that say press on them, doing the live TV news reports. So for the creators, for the audience in the early 1990s, they would have been seeing these wars happen with an immediacy that was completely new. For people who hadn't themselves lived through the World War II before, this would probably have been the closest they ever got to that feeling of being in it. And seeing what an attack on an urban civilian city by a vastly superior military force raining death from the sky actually looks like. And as much time as has passed in the 30 years that have passed, we've become very accustomed to that kind of news reporting, but the spread of high-speed internet access, the development of TikTok and other sort of video sharing platforms means that in these last couple of years, we have been seeing war now from the perspective of civilians and soldiers with an immediacy, with an urgency. Those of us who live in parts of the world that are not experiencing those conflicts have never had before. And the debate that we see between Katagina and her father, they are massacring everyone. It's not a massacre. They're only hunting down the resistance. Can't you see that's just a threadbare lie to justify all the killing? No, it's really the resistance's fault. If they hadn't burrowed into our city, then Bespo wouldn't be killing everyone. That debate, I see that on word Twitter word. every day now. Word for word. It was the eeriest feeling watching that on this animated show from 30 years ago. 
In that scene, I think Katagina's father loses the argument. He's clearly just spewing self-serving lies because he doesn't want to accept that he's made a deal with the devil. And when Katagina gets the better of him, he just smacks her because he's got nothing else for her except to impose his, like, brutal violence on her, just as Bespa is imposing their brutal and unrestrained violence on the people of Uwig. I had a somewhat different read on that scene. I do think it was a very interesting scene. Uh, and the reactions to the slap and the way they're animated, because initially Katagina seems shocked, but she very quickly transitions to anger, and her father looks afraid. Not sad, not just remorseful, not angry. He looks almost afraid of her or afraid of what she might do now. And immediately tries to apologize and she leaves. But he doesn't smack her after her comments about him selling out their town. He doesn't smack her. At any other point in the argument, he smacks her after she says, Do you even know where mother is? Later on, she thinks to herself that her mother left on a walk days ago and just never came home. And her assumption is that her mother went to meet a man. Her mother's having an affair. Tomino really has a thing about moms who have affairs. And leave their kids as a result of them. But I saw Katagina's father's reaction there, the slap at her, to be more about either a sense of loyalty to his wife, who he knows is cheating, but he doesn't want to hear Katagina talk about her like that, or sense of male pride, like how dare you start implying that I don't know where my wife is or that my wife is cheating on me, like that the reaction actually had nothing to do with this situation. It's all personal. It's all about how that last comment she made reflects on him or on their family and through their family, him. I can take being called an accomplice to mass murder. But a cuckold? But the moment you challenge my masculinity. Uh, yes. You're not wrong. I think Tomino's fixation on moms who leave their kids while they have affairs is actually merely a subset of his fixation on moms who ignore their kids in general. Because if you, you know, Amaro's mother had an affair, abandoned her child, but Camille's mom abandoned her child for work. Judo's mom abandoned her child for work. Seabook's mom abandoned her child for work. Uso's mom? Still question mark. Probably work. How old is Katagina? 17? She's practically an adult. I don't <laughs> I don't feel quite the same feelings about this as I did when I heard about, say, Amuro. Sure. While there were a lot of things that I thought were extremely well done in this episode and I'm sure we'll address them as we move through it. I found various narrative choices they made outright bad to confusing. Uh, like what? Well, you know, we mentioned Katagina getting in this argument with her father and then leaving after he hits her. She winds up talking through the window to some League military people about, can't you help everyone? Like, can't you do anything? And I had this moment of, wait a second, does she know them? Or did she just <laughs> run into them by chance? Like, what? <laughs> You know, this is this specific kind of thing has come up so often that as soon as that happened, a little light went off in my brain that just said, like, oh, I bet the novel starts a couple of days before this and includes an encounter between her and them. 
I know, I know. We're not covering the novels. I haven't read them, although I know they have been unofficially translated fairly recently. But it's just that this has happened so many times that I'm like, okay, Tomino, I know your game. I know there's more information in the novel. I bet they have a little interaction. I bet it's very revealing, but I haven't read it. And neither have any of the elementary and middle school children watching this program. The lower you make the age of your target demographic, the less likely they are to read your novels. It you also... can't put important stuff in the novels if you're trying to show the, the show to children. I also think it's so hypocritical on Tomino's part to, on the one hand, kind of disparage the more otaku fans of Gundam, and then on the other hand, expect people to run out and buy your book several days before the show airs so they can be sure they have all the background <laughs> information before the show airs. Just remember that this is a guy who has said, I wanted to be a novelist, but I'm not a very good writer, so instead <laughs> I have to make robot cartoons. Well, I would agree with him on that. I tried to read the novelization of First Gundam and I couldn't get through it. He has found a trick to get people to read his writing, <laughs> even if he doesn't think it's very good. He figured out this one weird trick. Publishers hate him. <laughs> but I can just imagine him cackling, tenting his fingers together like Mr. Burns. I have put all of the important world building and characterization in my novels. Now they will have to read them. But that is just one example the whole expository monologue was bad. Giving them the benefit of the doubt, they thought it would be better to have it be diegetic, to have it be a character, you know, thinking over recent events. But the language they use, the way that it's done, everything about it feels so unnatural for a 12 or 11-year-old girl. And why Shakti and why here and now? Why have it at all? I don't understand why they felt like it was necessary except that it allows them to show the combination sequence of the Gundam again. Such even a threadbare the excuse to get the Gundam in the episode. Right, because the Gundam doesn't actually appear until the very end of the episode. So was it whole awful expository monologue just an excuse to show the Gundam? Yes. Probably. <laughs> also that Shakti specifically calls out docking, uh, which in victory is a term of art for the transform and combination sequence. When the Zolos do it, it's docking. When the victory does it, it's docking. So she doesn't mean that because of all of this, Uso came and parked the victory here, came and joined up with the League Militaire. She means because of all of this, Uso transformed the victory Gundam. And then they show you the victory Gundam transforming just to put the mobile suit in front of kids' faces again. Look, this is why you're here, isn't it? Clumsily done. Because if all you wanted was to kind of connect the events of this episode to episode one, to say, you know, oh, was it the moment he got in the shackle that decided everything? Was it the moment he shot down that Zolo? No, in fact, it was him going to Uig. So it's establishing kind of a causal chain, but if that was all you wanted to do, there would be much more interesting ways to do that. This is a cheap shot to take at a, at a flashback, but hey Shakti, how did you know all the things you weren't there for? <laughs> She's barely in this episode. She's certainly not at Uig. She certainly doesn't know what the enemy pilots were saying or doing when no one else was around. I'm sure Uso told her all about it. 
Why does Uso know where Katagina lives? From the perspective of now, with social media and so many, like, basically micro-celebrities and the ability to kind of use the comments that someone makes about shops they like, places they like to go, pictures they post, you can pinpoint pretty closely the neighborhood someone lives in if you're very determined to do so. But this was the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I assume they have met before, somehow. And he doesn't know exactly where she is, right? He's flying around the city broadcasting through the loudspeakers on the Shaco. Where is Katagina Luz? Right, but that her house must be around here. Mm-hmm. He has kind of a general sense. And the, the interactions between them later still give me a kind of parasocial vibe where he knows much more about her than she knows about him. Mm-hmm. He has a much stronger sense of connection to her than she does to him. Which is also typical of the, like, the 14-year-old boy who has the crush on the 17-year-old girl. Like, that's typically how it works. She is his world, and he is the random neighbor kid. Because he mentions to her, in an echo of episode one, she asks, just what kind of kid are you? And he replies, one of the illegal Earth residents you hate. I'm constructing this whole image of Universal Century Twitter, where she's a like a minor niche micro Universal Century internet celebrity, and he is one of her followers. I mean, that is more or less what I'm imagining, that she is some kind of local public figure or celebrity who has spoken publicly on these things. And if he follows her speeches and her letters to the editor and her uh, talks and appearances at rallies or whatever, he has quite a good idea of at least the opinions that she voices publicly, whereas she would have no reason to know anything about him. Or alternatively, they could have met while she was going on a little wander outside the city. Maybe she was menaced by the wolves or wild dogs, whatever it was that was harassing Gary. And then Uso paraglides in to save the day. They share an afternoon, hanging out and talking. She mentions her feelings about the illegals in the area, and he, smitten and afraid of revealing his secret, just kind of goes along with it. Then, feeling oppressed and lonely in her pampered but isolated life, she gives him her fax number and suggests that he can write her, you know, now and then if he wants to, if he feels like it, no pressure. That he doesn't know specifically where she lives is actually kind of funny and maybe a continuity issue. Because if you remember the photos that flash up on his desktop in, uh, in the prior episode, some of them are of her seemingly in a house, maybe her house. So if he took those photos, um, shouldn't he know where that house is? I still contend that within the world of the show, someone has already pointed out to me that this question is answered in the books, but we're dealing just with the show. (laughs) Within the world of the show, we don't have any indication that he took those pictures. If those were paparazzi photos then some paparazzo is stalking her and taking pictures of her on the balcony of her house. Maybe those are thirst traps that she posted on Earthstagram. I don't know. She looks kind of (laughs) irritated. Some people are into that. That might be why she's famous on the internet. For looking pretty and angry. Yeah. Can't you just imagine her handle at your angry girlfriend? If I go online right now and search pretty girl is mean to you, how many results do you think I'm going to (laughs) get? 
Uh, infinite, infinite number. New ones all the time. But the thing that actually bugged me about him running around broadcasting, where is Katagina loose? Is that so much of the emotion of the early scenes of this episode is about him stuck in the shackle, unable to communicate with people outside. So people who he's there to help are distracted fighting him and then instead are mowed down by this other part of the Yellow Jacket's force. And at the same time, when the Yellow Jackets show up, he's yelling in his cockpit, but they can't hear him. They don't know that it's a young boy in there. And it adds this feeling of powerlessness that feels in contradiction to being in a mobile suit. In a way, he is powerless. He's alone. He doesn't have allies here. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just a kid. He's never seen or experienced anything like this before. It's very moving. And then to all of a sudden have it be like, oh, but now that he's looking for Katagina, he knows how to use the loudspeaker. I don't know. It really bothered me. It felt like it undercut so much of the poignancy in that early part of the episode. I agree with you. There's a bit later on where um, it's after he's taken down one of the Zolos and the pilot has like abandoned his copter and been shot by the resistance. And Uso is like sick and horrified and the hatch of the Shako just pops open. Up until then, Uso has felt so separated from what's going on in the ground because as a pilot of a mobile suit flying around with a metal shell around him and everything mediated through the monitors, he is separated from all of it. He is a witness to it. And then the shell cracks, the door opens, and suddenly he's right there. He's just part of it all. That's a beautiful moment. I found it very powerful, but it is undercut by the loudspeaker scene from earlier. And then the final part that I found extremely confusing is that there are two Yellow Jackets pilots who look almost identical and who I spent the first watch through thinking they were the same person and that horrible continuity errors had been made. This is Chris, uh, the pilot who gets shot, and Sabat, the, I think, commander of this little unit who Uso fights initially and then again at the end and who escapes after his wingman Lee is shot down. In normal suits with their helmets on, they look almost the same. They've both got slightly tanned skin and very blonde hair, which is kind of spiky. Um, I think they have the same color eyes. The only real way to tell them apart is that one of them is dead and the other one has a slightly deeper voice. Imagine my confusion when, in the early part of the episode, one of them realizes that it must not be Lieutenant Chronicle in there and that he is going to pursue the shackle and recapture it for personal glory, only for later what seemed to be that same pilot saying, Lieutenant Chronicle, are you on the side of the League military? <laughs> uh, it is BESPA military doctrine that in order to protect each like commanding officer, they have to have one body double in their unit just in case of assassination attempts. Similar levels of confusion when we see one of them leave his downed mobile suit and get shot from off screen and then... It looks as though the same guy reappears, piloting a more different or mobile suit. <laughs> that just felt like poor planning, unnecessarily confusing. Or it could have been strictly a mistake. Somebody could have drawn the wrong character. During that battle, when Uso first intervenes in the fighting in Uig, 
he refuses to use the beam rifle that he stole off of Gary's uh, Zolo at the in the previous episode because he's afraid of setting off the fusion reactor in the mobile suit that he's attacking. And so the whole fight, he uses the beam saber instead. Having a sword fight with a helicopter is like trying to attack a naval fleet with a cavalry charge, which is to say it works sometimes. One thing they've done a really great job of is showing us how clever Uso is, that he is really good at thinking on his feet and coming up with some kind of solution to the problem that confronts him. He finds them a way out of the rubble of that building that's collapsed, even though he realizes he might have to go down rather than up. He uses his beam sabers like flashing off and on like beam rifle fire, like bullets. And he like points the blades together so that the beams are combined to make it a little longer. He uses his own beam rotor like a shield at one point to protect him against the fire from one of the other mobile suits in that last fight. And then he uses it to cut open one of the cockpits. He knows just enough about this technology to be able to think on his feet and sort of find a way to to accomplish his goals, even though he doesn't know the full capabilities of the mobile suit. He hasn't been trained on it. This actually made me think of your piece last week on the Shinjin Rui and the way kids always seem to grasp new technologies on an intuitive level and then manipulate them for unexpected uses. Like when we were kids and schools were just starting to adapt to kids writing their assignments in a word processor instead of by hand or on a typewriter. And so you would be asked to hand in your assignment as a word file on a floppy disk. And there was this whole period where you could pretty reliably get a little bit of extra time to finish an assignment if you turned in a disk with a corrupted file on it. There was no adult computer engineer going around telling kids, hey, if you take a random image file and change the name to myessay.doc, it won't open properly, and you can claim the digital version of my dog ate my homework. Kids everywhere just figured that out on their own. There's definitely some of that, but the fact that he knows the specific terminology, there are a bunch of times when he references specific parts of the mobile suit or systems or things that the mobile suit does. I don't remember the terms he uses, but like, ah, I have to turn off the such and such stabilizer or if I just equip such and such technical name of, <laughs> you know, part or system, mm -hmm. which speaks to more specific knowledge than that just kind of like, oh, I fiddled around with it a bit and intuited how it works. I'm just saying that if you gave a kid a tank, they'd probably cause a lot of damage, but they would figure out how to make it do some stuff. But back to Uso. No matter how much danger he is in, no matter how difficult it is for him, he never takes the easy way out. He never decides that his own life and his own convenience is more important than the potential collateral damage of setting off one of these reactors in a crowded urban area. The attention they pay to Uso's face and the way in which they use his face to convey the horror he's feeling at what he's witnessing and what he's doing is really impressive. Though I think they misstep slightly during the scene when they're trying to escape from the crushed building. Mm, the yeah. turnaround, the emotional whiplash from Uso looking around with this light and seeing 
the face of a dead body, blood still streaming down, lifeless eyes staring back at him, and his quite justifiable horror at seeing that, this person who moments ago was alive and is now just a thing. And then within a couple of seconds, it's, oops, Uso bumped his head on the roof. Haha, <laughs> that's funny. I even think that his reaction to seeing that body next to him is kind of overdone and silly. Mm-hmm. The kind of startled face or frightened face from a comedy. But earlier in the episode, there's this great moment where they capture Uso shifting from horror to anger by having this close up on his horrified face and then washing everything purple along with playing a, a musical cue, emphasizing that shift in his feeling, in his mental state, and how quickly it happens. It's nice to see the return of these really abrupt contrasting color uh, sequences in order to represent the character's psychology. We saw that a lot in First Gundam, less so later on, I think, as they got into a more realist style. Throughout the early scene setting, we see a lot of people killed and a lot of corpses. But later in that fight, they still make a point of foregrounding to wounded or dead people on the ground with the shako like emerging from this firestorm behind them, literally foregrounding the civilian casualties of this attack. And I love the way they depict all of the resistance fighters as just like, they don't have uniforms. These are people wearing whatever they were wearing when the attack began, motorcycle helmets, if they happen to have them. This woman in like a long coat and thigh highs and a mini skirt with a machine gun. This is what the resistance is. Katajina's father describes them as like coming to Uig, burrowing into the city and making it a target, but he's full of The resistance are the people who live here and are trying to defend their homes with whatever they have. That's what a resistance is. And they have some equipment that is certainly uh, non-standard for a civilian to have access to, but they are not equipped like an army. Then there's the scene in which the woman with the baby is killed, and they've actually storyboarded it so she runs directly at the camera. She comes directly at us at the screen and then only change the angle on it as she's falling. This framing makes it almost an appeal to us. We, the audience, we see her as though we were sheltering in a building at the other end of the plaza, waiting and watching and hoping that she can get to us and yet utterly powerless to help. This scene is strikingly similar to the one in F91. Uh, also, when a mother carrying a baby is killed in the fighting and the baby, as has happened here, is then picked up by the heroes and becomes part of their traveling found family. But in F91, the woman was killed by a stray shell casing fired from a mobile suit that was sort of trying to defend her, at least nominally on the side of the government running her side at the time. Despite its overt similarities, that scene was about the callous indifference of your own government, and this scene is about the, like, gleeful, sadistic murder by these yellow jackets. By this external other that has come here and sees the people living in Uig as parasites. Not people. Just to be exterminated. In another scene where 
Again, they use some tricks so that they don't have to animate very much. It's really like a large still image of people fleeing the city and they just kind of like jerk the image around so you get a sense of movement like from the explosions. But they also have uh, sparks and smoke lightly animated over it. And the red tinge that they've used for all of these scenes really conveys that feeling of like oppressive smoke, the heat, the choking atmosphere. And that it's everywhere, so that there's no getting away from it. And then finally, once it's over, once the fires are mostly out, there is a shot of the wreckage of the city. And there's this piece of railroad track that's jutting up into the sky and one little bit of metal off of it is glinting like the stars around it in the sky is like catching the moonlight or some other light source and sparkling above all this wreckage. This is a, I thought, very powerful image. It is at many times a very beautifully done episode. It reminds me of that speech that Galadriel gives in Lord of the Rings when she says that she would become beautiful and terrible as the dawn. We talked a little bit about the world building done by this episode. I thought the line right after Chris gets shot when the resistance fighter who has shot him says, we won't let you turn Earth into a Zanskar resort. That was one of the only bits of information we've had so far about what exactly it is Zanskar is trying to achieve or what the League military think they are trying to achieve. And this question of what is Bespa actually trying to achieve recurs repeatedly throughout the episode. It's the first thing Uso says when he sees what's happening is, why are they doing this? And then Katagina and her dad argue about it. Um, the pilots never really give an answer. And even their commander seems to want to leave, seems to feel that what they are doing here has no strategic importance. The phrase she uses is something like, we're never going to win any glory or honor in such a backwater. Right. Like, these people aren't worth fighting. So what are they doing here? What is their agenda? We'll have to keep an eye on that. Another important line, and this flashes by real quick, is when one of the resistance guys who is shooting at the Shako at the beginning uh, refers to him as a hunter. And he says hunter, like the English loan word, and it's capitalized in the subtitles. And that's because we're doing some deep lore here. This is a thing you would only get if you have read other Tomino novels about the Universal Century previously, in particular the Hathaway's Flash ones, because the hunters being referred to here are probably the manhunting police unit of the Federation who are the task force stationed on Earth specifically to find illegal residents like Uso's family and deport them to the colonies with extreme violence. My understanding is that by this point, they either don't exist or have become, like everything else in the Federation, so sclerotic and lethargic that they don't actually do anything. But that is, like, that is the reference that is being made here. It feels like a weird reference to make, given all of that context you need to be able to understand it. But maybe it's just in to give a sense of the world being expansive, or maybe it's setting up plot developments down the line. But it does seem like these people in Uig think of Zanskar like the old hunter units. 
Speaking of, maybe the hunter units are are too old or too different for this to be a concern for Shakti. But given that history, it would be odd for her to just like dash out of the house when she hears a rotor overhead. I assume she has just been really, really worried about Uso. Uh, so worried, she sees the rotor, she thinks rotor means Uso in the Shako, and she's 12. Yeah, I know. But also, if your family's life depends on hiding, you'd think you would hide instinctively <laughs> under those kind of circumstances. And then on the other hand, we have Odello, who has been exposed to enough of this now that he can recognize the sounds of different rotors and identify hmm. mobile suits by them. Oof. Yeah. Although, now that you bring up that scene, um, I assume this is a translation issue and not a dialogue issue, but it's very funny that after they have been spotted by the Zolo and the Zolo is yelling at them and pursuing them as they run away from it, Odello is like, we can't let them see us. Yeah, I uh, I would need to re-listen to it. But in the moment, I tried to pick out what he was saying in Japanese. And I thought it was more like, you shouldn't have let them see you. Or, oh no, you let them see you. I thought maybe it meant like, we can't like lead them back to the hiding spot or something oh, like that. Maybe. Like I said, I only kind of heard it. Sure. And I, I tried and I couldn't make out what he was saying either. But there's a lot of possibilities. None of them are what is in the subtitles. Speaking of the translation, I was really curious about the term that they keep using for Uwig, special district. I had wondered if you looked up what term they're using in Japanese and if it gets applied to any real world places in the same way you did with illegal resident versus illegal immigrant. I did. They're saying tokubetsuku, which is um, like special district is a pretty good way to translate it, but it doesn't really get across what it is. Um, tokubetsuku are, um, I guess example is the best way to do this. Under the Tojo government in the 1940s, the city of Tokyo was abolished and was never reinstated. There is no city of Tokyo. There is the Tokyo Metropolitan Prefecture, which is a prefectural level administrative division within modern Japan. And then within Tokyo Metropolitan, there are 62 um, cities and towns and villages. Wards, I think they're often yes. called. Of those wards, 23 of them are special districts. Ah, okay. Hmm. So they are the they are the top level divisions within the Tokyo prefecture. They are not part of a city, but they are the wards that used to be part of Tokyo City when it was a city. Okay. And then the the additional 30 something odd wards are the ones that have been like were part of the prefecture and are incorporated into the metropolitan, but were not part of the city. So if you've ever played Like a Dragon, and you've wondered, hey, why is the guy in charge of Tokyo the governor instead of the mayor? It's because Tokyo is not a city. It is a prefecture and it has a governor. By rough analogy, if the greater metropolitan area of New York City were to become its own state, then the boroughs would be pretty similar to Tokubetsuku. 
On a practical political level, the special wards have less autonomy from the prefectural government than do other cities, and so I assume the purpose of calling Uwig a special district is to convey to the audience that it is a constituent part of some larger government division and that it isn't really self-governing. There's another bizarre bit later on, like right at the very end when Uso in the Shako has returned, everybody is meeting together for the first time in the woods, although we don't actually know that Uso is there until somewhat into the scene, because it opens with uh, Susie, Shakti, Flanders, and the blonde one all just staring directly at the camera, saying nothing for kind of a long moment. And then it switches to a wide shot of them from the side, and one, the blonde kid just disappears between cuts. They're all just staring at Katagina. Except maybe not, because then in another cut, it shows us that the Shaka with Uso in it is right behind Katagina. So, like, this is a very weird scene. I don't know who's looking at who or talking to who about <laughs> what. <laughs> But then it has this it has this really interesting ending where Uso gets out of the Shako, all the horrors are like washed over him and he's he's his bubbly fun self again, all his friends are here, and he immediately thinks, we gotta get this baby some food and some diapers. Practical consideration. Never mind where I was or what I was doing or all the horrors, gotta feed this kid. And Katagina hands him the baby. It almost freezes on them, zooms in, the background changes. It's like a holy family tableau. Mary, like, holding up the baby Christ to Joseph. At that moment, it's very clear it's Shakti looking at them and seeing this image of family. But I actually think that is more reflective of Shakti's fear that she's losing Uso than it is of the reality of the show, because point one... Who seems like the more natural person to take care of a baby, stereotypically, a 17-year-old girl or a 13-year-old boy? And yet, it's the 13-year-old boy <laughs> being handed the baby. The 17-year-old is clearly very happy to not be holding the baby anymore. Uh, <laughs> and eventually it devolves onto the 12-year-old girl, as we see in the framing narrative. See, I think that uh, scene at the end, where it's Shakti with the baby... And the Gundam looming almost protectively over them, the Gundam which we have now established is being piloted by Uso. And I think that's the actual family image mm -hmm. of the show, not Uso Katagina and the baby. Uso as father protector, Shakti as mother caregiver, and then the baby Karlman, at least in the first episode and now here at the end, is like this insistent reminder that life goes on. The, the cyclical rebirth of life, but also that, yes, there's a war going on, but the baby still needs to be fed and the diapers still need to be changed. And that there is a future. In spite of everything, the future is coming. And now Tom's research on the contemporary reception to Victory Gundam. We have a pretty good idea why Victory was made and who it was for. Bandai wanted an accessible, youth-oriented Gundam show, and Studio Sunrise senior management wanted to do whatever it took to convince Bandai to close the deal, buying their studio and presumably making them all rich men. 
While it's always possible that Tomino and his team went rogue, ignored their instructions, and intentionally blew all that sponsor money on pathos and tragedy, the evidence points in the other direction. They were earnestly trying to make an accessible, popular, youth-oriented Gundam show that would kickstart a new boom in popularity for the increasingly marginalized real Gundam franchise. But the work itself stands in between the author's intentions and the audience's reception. Today, Victory is generally regarded as a commercial failure and an artistic disappointment to its creators. Perhaps the most famous single review of Victory comes from an interview that was published with the 2004 10th Anniversary Memorial DVD box set, in which Tomino himself called the show a mess, a truly terrible work, and said that he would like the box to come with a warning. This DVD is unwatchable, don't buy it. By the way, I sometimes see debates about whether this is real or one of the many, many apocryphal rumors about Tomino that circulate endlessly in the fandom. This one at least is real. I have seen the booklet. But even though it's viewed as a failure in hindsight, that doesn't tell us much about what people thought of it when it came out. How did audiences and critics react to victory at the time? Recently, Nina and I had the good fortune to acquire a fairly large collection of old issues of the English-language magazine An America, published from November 1992 to June 2005 by Viz Media. There's a lot of interesting stuff in these old mags, especially for us. From a feature on the first anime convention to be held on what they called the geographically challenged east coast of the United States, to an overview of Stardust Memory, which includes this absolutely searing burn from Karahashi Takayuki. The jury's still out on whether auteur Tomino Yoshiyuki's personal involvement in a Gundam project during this last decade has been a bane or a boon at the box office. On the one hand, without him, there would never have been the original 1979 Mobile Suit Gundam TV series. On the other hand, there would never have been a Gundam F91. Actually, the number of times writers in this magazine found excuses to take digs at F91 in articles not remotely about that movie sure says a lot about that film's contemporary reception. Karahashi also reported that when Zeta Gundam aired, disapproval ran high among the fans because of the existentialism and human angst, which, ironically, are also the source of much of its popularity in the U.S., then there's a mini-article from Fred Schott, translator of the Gundam novels, explaining the thinking behind some of his name translation choices, and the hate mail that he got for choosing Shah over Shar. There is even a preview of Victory, published in the April 1993 issue, just before Victory started airing on television. Since at this point no one had actually seen Victory, I have to assume that the information in it all comes from a press release, and that the same info would have been published in Japanese anime magazines around the same time. The preview describes the world situation thus. Victory Gundam is set 30 years after Gundam F91, and is set in UC-153. The rule of the Earth Federation is beginning to show signs of wear, and the Side 2-based Zanskar Empire has recently emerged to establish a new space order. At the beginning of the story, the Empire rules most of the colonies of Side 2, and is starting an advance toward Earth itself. Against the Zanskar invasion stands the underground civilian resistance known as the Riga Militia. The mobile suit called Gundam has been made into legend, the symbol of the resistance movement. The Riga Militia is developing the so-called Victory Gundam in a desperate attempt to hold off the steadily encroaching Empire. The main character of Victory Gundam is Uso Eben, 
a 13-year-old boy from Earth who eventually comes to be the Victory Gundam's pilot. Standing by Uso is the 12-year-old Shakti Karin, a girl with strange empathy toward Earth. At the top of the Zanskar Empire is the Empress Maria Amenias, in power with the backing of Vance Kagachi, chairman of the politically powerful Gachi Party. Uh, of course, a lot of those names have changed over the years, but that is the basic setup of the story that you are supposed to know going into episode one, if you've been reading all the appropriate magazines. Which you have been, right? You're a real Gundam fan. Silently looking uncomfortable, <laughs> glancing left and right. <laughs> But for me, at least, the most useful feature was a regular series reporting on the top 10 anime in Japan that month, as measured by three metrics. Home video sales, TV ratings, and the results of a monthly poll conducted by Japanese anime magazine Animeju. By looking at the results from these three lists over the course of Victory's run, I think we can get a pretty good sense of the audience response. Anamerica changed its format slightly after the first two years and dropped the TV ratings and magazine poll sections, leaving only the home video sales data, which is still nice to have, but you can imagine my consternation. Anyway, Animeju, the one that was running the poll, was one of the three most prominent anime magazines in Japan at the time, alongside Newtype and Animedia. Of those, it was perhaps the most adult and hardcore fan-oriented magazine crammed to bursting with detailed information, social, political, and environmental commentary, as well as often harsh film criticism that really set it apart from the flashy, promotion-oriented photo spreads of Newtype. Animedia, for its part, focused on shows and comics for really young kids, the kind of content that the other magazines considered unworthy of serious attention. Unsurprisingly, Animeju's circulation at the time was only about 60% of Newtypes, and it's probable that many of its readers were really only there because they wanted to read Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which was serialized in Animeju. That means that these Animeju reader polls reported in Animerica draw their data from a pretty narrow subset of the anime-watching community, and one that is far outside of Victory Gundam's target demographic. But it's still a good measure for the buzz about a show within the anime fan community. The ratings information is more straightforward. It represents what people are actually watching. And when you look at this data, it becomes very clear, very fast, that the largest cohort of people watching anime are young kids. The list is dominated by shows like Crayon Shinchan, Sazae-san, Doraemon, and whichever world masterpiece theater show happened to be running at the time. It was Little Women 2, Nan, and Miss Joe for most of the relevant period. But shows with similar target demographics to Victory filled out the rest of the list. Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon are basically always on there, as well as Yu Yu Hakusho, although at this point it was known as the Poltergeist Report in English. Finally, the home video sales figures reflect the most hardcore subset of fans. Firm data on sales volume for anime home video in the 1990s is hard to come by, but just to give you a sense of scale, in 1993, a popular manga magazine like Shonen Jump would sell millions of copies a month. The anime magazine Animeju had a circulation of about 200,000 copies. A home video release, especially for a TV anime, qualified as a big hit if it managed to move 10,000 copies. Even today, 10,000 copies is considered very impressive. 
it's quite common for a show to sell only a few hundred copies. In 2020, the first volume of the show Gal and Dinosaur from Pop Team Epic director Aoki Jun sold 63 copies. Victory was actually the first Gundam TV show to get a simultaneous home video release. In fact, Zeta and Double Zeta would not be available on home video until after Victory finished its run. It was sold as 13 volumes of four episodes each, excepting the final volume which contained just three episodes. They were released monthly starting on September 24, 1993, near the halfway mark of the show's TV run. The last one came out September 24, 1994. Each volume retailed for 9,800 yen, which, considering the fluctuating exchange rate in that period, was anywhere between $87 and $100 US at the time, roughly equivalent to $180 to $200 today. Even in the notoriously expensive Japanese home video market, this is a premium price. Anamerica was good enough to include the price in yen for each home video release on these top 10 lists, and in the period I surveyed, there were no videos more expensive than 9,800 yen. Almost all of them were under 6,000, many were under 5, and a few sold for less than 3,000. If the TV ratings represent Victory's reception in the target demographic, and the Animeju reader polls represent the views of anime fandom at large, then I think we should view sales of the home video as a proxy for Victory's popularity among the always reliable, hardcore Gundam otaku set. Right from the start, Victory claimed a spot in the top 10 for the Animeju reader poll. But actually, I think it probably secured that spot before anyone had even seen the first episode. The poll in question covered the period from March 11th to April 10th. Victory's first episode didn't air until April 2nd, and it still snagged the number four spot on the list, so I suspect a lot of the respondents were voting based on hyped-up anticipation for a new Gundam show. The following month, Victory slipped to 6th, then to 10th. From May until December, this is episodes 6 to 39, it hung on near the bottom of the chart, slipping off of it entirely in August, but then crawling its way all the way back up to number 7 in November. It disappeared in January, and did not return for the remaining three months of its run. Its performance on home video was better, but followed a markedly similar pattern. Strong but not outstanding performance in the first part, with interest notably declining toward the latter end of the series. Volume 1 debuted at number 6, trailing behind such 90s anime stalwarts as Sailor Moon, Tenchi Muyo, and Ah My Goddess. Volume 3 notched the best result at number 5. Volume 5 slipped to 7th place, and none of the remaining volumes ever got higher than 8th, with volumes 7 and 8 failing to place on the chart at all. As for the ratings, Victory never managed to crack the top 10. Despite everything that Tomino and his crew had tried to woo them, the kids just were not interested. It's not just that the ratings were not enough to catapult the show into the stratospheric heights of the top 10, the ratings were decidedly disappointing. In a column published in Animerica's September 1993 issue, the manga and anime journalist Oshiguchi Takashi complained that, even with 10 years of advanced publicity behind it, Mobile Suit Victory Gundam couldn't seem to earn a measly 10% share upon its debut. On the other hand, Crayon Shinchan, a show about a mature-for-his-age, slightly cynical kindergarten boy, easily maintains a 20% rating. 
The result is that today's TV producers are convinced that only children's shows made for children can earn good ratings. I wonder if that attitude partly contributed to the executive decision to aim victory at a younger audience. That's where the viewers are. But frankly, Oshiguchi's column makes it pretty clear that Sunrise did not get the show they set out to create. In fact, he describes victory as possibly the most hardcore fan-oriented TV show of the year, the latest in a decade-long series of Gundam TV and OAV releases clearly hoping to cash in on this more mature fan market. The reason for Victory Gundam's poor ratings is not that it's a bad show, but that the market for hardcore anime fans is very, very small in the huge mainstream media of television. Perhaps in the case of Victory Gundam, themes and backgrounds too highbrow for children were at fault as well. Oshiguchi's view of Victory tracks with other contemporary commentary. In December 1993, anime director Ano Hideaki sat down with Ikuhara Kunihiko, who was then in the middle of his star-making turn as director of Sailor Moon, to discuss a subject near and dear to both of their hearts. Gundam. Specifically, Char's counterattack. But in between talking about CCA and taking shots at Stardust Memory for being boring, Ikuhara found himself asking, Is Victory Gundam enjoyable? I have a hard time figuring that out. <laughs> Maybe the only ones having fun are us. I wonder if actual children are enjoying it. Ano agreed that the story was too heavy for children to enjoy, and they both lamented that Tomino seemed unable to escape from Gundam's long shadow, even after all this time. What would it take, they wondered for him to finally be able to make something truly fresh. Next time on episode 10.4, Last Stand at Casarelia, we research and discuss episode 4 of Victory Gundam and extremely normal canine behavior. We shouldn't judge Katagina for hating a baby. What if the baby has bad vibes? The party line. You can't name somebody Jim in a Gundam show. Bondi battle! Bondi battle! How would a dog ride a Wappa? Karlman is cute. Offering a guest some chips. A cool old man who messes up sometimes is totally adorable. Godzorla. Really? Godzorla. Godzorla. Protecting Earth from pollution by bombing it into oblivion. And we are all Karlman. Crying, wailing, watching it all happen helplessly. Please listen to it. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Slow by Lloyd Rogers. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes on our website, GundamPodcast.com. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hosts at gundampodcast.com or look for links to our social media accounts on our website. And if you would like to support the show, please share us with your friends, leave a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts, or support us financially at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. You can find links and more ways to help out at gundampodcast.com support. Thank you for listening. The Gundam fandom has been corrupted by wrong opinions, and the only way to purify ourselves is by exposing them to the light of day. For instance, did you know that Shy Monkeys thinks the pronunciation to Uso's last name is actually a worldwide multimedia augmented reality game that no one has figured out yet? Apparently you can claim the truth is yours if you figure out the first step, finding all of the carefully laid out clues in five secret background shots throughout the show. Okay, but actually though, I do think Marbet's name is a reference that no one has figured out before. So look forward to that. Please listen to it. Oh, hey, fun side note. Victory might never have cracked the top 10 for ratings during its run, but Batman the Animated Series did. In March 1993, it managed to beat Neketsu Saikyo Gozarer to snag the number nine spot. What if I just sigh heavily? <laughs> that works for me. Yeah, I can, I can work with that. Because of all of this, Uso, like, landed the F-91 here. F-91. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. There's a, there's a lot in this episode that feels like, hey, I want to do F-91 again. other things that I could mention, but I don't know that I have lots more to say. I, mean, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of quibbles and nitpicks. Mm. Um, oh well, you should talk through some of those because we mostly heard mine. You mm. could be like, you have the Nina seal of approval. I'm glad you liked it, or at least approved of it. It's not quite the same as liking it. Oh, yeah, that's my alarm. I think that's the alarm telling me that we need to absolutely, definitely make it the episode. (laughs) Reminder, it is Friday. But I digress. Yeah, I I really vibe with that, like, are kids enjoying this (laughs) (laughs) feeling? Not that I know anything about what kids like, but... I can't help but wonder. (laughs) 